الحمد لله وكفى وسلاما على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد opposite to this meaning opposite to the people that choose to or that forget Allah Ta'ala in this world opposite to this are the people of blessing and success whose lives in this world are the most wholesome and whose lives in the barzakh and the hereafter will offer the greatest recompense Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran من عمل صالحا من ذكر أو أنثى وهو مؤمن فلنحيينه حياة طيبة. Allah Taala says whoever does good, whether male or female, من ذكر وأنثى فلنحيينه حياة طيبة. وهو مؤمن. While they're in a state of belief, they believe, right? They're in a state of iman. فلنحيينه حياة طيبة. Then we shall certainly give them a wholesome life, a goodly life, a حياة طيبة. And Sayyid uh, Al-Qayyim says, this in the world. So, one of the first things that happens when a person is obedient to Allah Ta'ala, or I shouldn't say one of the first things, but one of the things that happens to the person who is obedient to Allah is Allah Ta'ala grants them a wholesome life, uh, a, a life, a goodly life, a goodly life. And there's a lot of um, explanation behind what that actually means, but we, we want people to go into that. Uh, then he says, okay, so then he mentions four verses here. I'm just going to mention two of them in the interest of time. He says in another verse, Allah Ta'ala says that, this is in Surah Hud, that if you seek forgiveness from your Lord, then you turn back to Him in repentance, turn to Allah in repentance. He will provide you with a goodly provision, mata'an hasana, a goodly uh, experience or a goodly life, a goodly provision. Uh, until an appointed time, and he will give you favor to each one worthy of favor. Um, so, he mentions two other verses as well, and so then he continues. In these four instances, meaning these four examples he's given, Allah Ta'ala affirms that He will uh, reward or recompense the doer of good for his good with two rewards. A reward in this world and a reward in the next world. So for the good deeds, there must be recompense in the short term, and likewise for the wrong. But it would be enough for the doer of good to have no other reward than the expansiveness he feels in his breast, in his chest. Okay, so there, it would be so. Basically, what he's saying, Ibn Al-Qayyim is saying that there's guaranteed reward in this life by Allah, according to the verses of the Quran, and there's guaranteed reward in the hereafter. But it would be sufficient to just have even the reward in this world that comes with the remembrance of Allah. This is what he's saying. So I'm going to repeat this part. But it would be enough for the doer of good to have no other reward or recompense than the expansiveness he feels in his chest, the joy that he feels in his heart, the pleasure he finds in dealing with his Allah, his obedience to and his invocation to him, and the delight of his soul that comes from the love of Allah and his remembrance. Ibn al-Qayyim is saying that it would be sufficient to just get these things. Why is it sufficient? Because everyone's trying to get this. Right? This is... Like this eternal, this this uh, uh, 
pursuit of happiness that everyone's chasing and that people are are, are, are doing whatever they can, right? They're sacrificing their money, their wealth, their time, their family, their everything in order to try to pursue this. And this is present, or this can be achieved or attained through the love and remembrance of Allah. So this is why this would be sufficient. If you could sell these things to have uh, expansiveness in your chest, Right? meaning to feel less constricted, uh, the joy in, in one's heart, uh, the pleasure in interacting with Allah in particular, and uh, the delight of, of the soul, you could make a million dollars today if you could sell this, maybe more. Um, because no, everyone's looking for it and no one can find it. But the solution lies in the love of an invocation toward Allah Ta'ala. And Ibn al-Qayyim is saying that if you could just even have this reward in this world, it would be sufficient. But that's not how Allah Ta'ala works. When He gives, He gives uh, without, without calculation. Allah Ta'ala, when He gives, it, you know, when it rains, it pours from Allah. He's not just going to leave the believer with satisfaction in this world. He's going to give the believer far more than that because this is who Allah is. He's not like us. You don't, you don't, you know, you go to you go to the store. Twenty dollars, you'll get, you know, a few pack of chips and a, you know, maybe a two liter, right? That's all you're going to get. The store owner's not going to give you the rest of the store and say, you know what? I'm in a good mood today. Just here, take the keys to the store. It's yours. You don't get that. But with Allah, you get it. Allah Taala is not just going to give you. It's not, it's not a one-for-one one type deal. You don't put in a little bit of effort to become closer to Allah, and Allah only gives you satisfaction in this life. Allah Ta'ala loves to give, and He loves to give abundantly. So He just gives and gives and gives. He says, why, why, why should we stop at just being satisfied in this world? Why don't you also just be satisfied for all of eternity? Why not? I can do it. I mean, I have full control. This is, I'm the one that created both domains to begin with. So I'm the one in charge of both. I'm the... I'm the, the the one responsible for both. I'm the one who's um, going to be sustaining both of these domains. I own it. It's mine. Go ahead, take whatever you want from it. Don't just stop at being content in this world. Why don't you also be content in the hereafter? Conversely, Ibn al-Qayyim says, The narrowness, hardness of heart, dispersion, darkness, rancor, cares, woes, sadness, and fear which the ill-doer receives in return uh, are a response that are requital that no one with the la- least sense or the least life can doubt. These are truly the punishments of this life, the worldly fire, the hell of this world, just as turning toward Allah finding contentment in Allah and from Allah and filling, one, filling one's heart with His love, constant remembrance of Him, the joy and happiness that comes from knowing Allah. These are the rewards of this life, the heaven of this world, and the life which no life of a king can equal in the least. Right? So, the opposite is a punishment in this life. Meaning, if you're heedless of Allah, if you choose to turn away from Allah, if you turn to be disobedient toward Allah, or if you turn to forget Allah altogether, you're not just going to suffer in the hereafter, right? I mean, that would be enough, because the hereafter is eternity. This life is a life of misery for you as well. 
right? It's sadness, woes, fear, all of these things, rancor, darkness, dispersion, hardness of heart, narrowness. These are punishments of this life. Ibn al-Qayyim calls it the worldly fire. This is the hell of this world. This is why this world is like hell for people, right? Is because this is what they're experiencing. Um, okay, then he continues. And then he talks about the heaven of this world. I heard the Shaykh of Islam, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, say, Truly there is a heaven in this world, and whoever does not enter it will not enter the heaven of the next world. And once he said to me, Ibn Qayyim said, sorry, Ibn Taymiyyah says this to his student, Ibn Qayyim, What can my enemies do to me? Again, going back in history, Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah, he was imprisoned for a large portion of his life. In fact, the latter portion of his life, until he passed away, he was imprisoned. Um, for for a few reasons, it, just, it was a lot of politics at the time, and um, and Ibn Al Qayyim rahimahullah and a lot of his students were imprisoned with him. And Ibn Al Qayyim was the one who chose to to stay with Ibn Al Qayyim uh, Ibn Taymiyyah in his company in prison. So he said, "What can my enemies do to me? I have in my breast, in my chest, both my heaven and my garden. If I travel, they are with me; they never leave me." This is the beauty of a person connecting with Allah and becoming comfortable with their own dhikr. It gives you, and the reason that we're partly at least covering it is so that when you leave here, you have the tools needed to be able to uh, take care of yourself, right? And to be able to travel with. It isn't that dhikr that you learn here or that you understand or benefit from here, you keep it here and then you, you forget about it once you leave. These are tools that you use and you carry these tools with you wherever you go. So he says, what can they do to me? I have in my chest both my heaven and my garden. If I travel, with the, if I travel they're with me, and they never leave me. Imprisonment for me is a religious retreat, khalwa. To be slain for me is martyrdom, shahada. And to be exiled from my land is a spiritual journey, a siyaha. Look at the approach he's taking to life. He's, I mean... He's in the most difficult, he's in a, what we would call a dire situation, right? You don't have freedom and everyone wants freedom. But what is he saying? He's saying, sure, imprison me. This is my khalwa. This is my chance to now actually retreat. This is, you know, right now we've voluntarily imprisoned ourselves into the masjid so that we could just focus on Allah Ta'ala. He's saying, well, okay, voluntarily having to imprison yourself, it requires effort. But if someone else locks you up, then they've done the work for you. So now you can spend your time in khalwa and just relax and enjoy uh, your time with Allah. And then to be slain for me is shahada, is martyrdom. What's the big deal? I'm going to connect, I'm going to end up being with my Allah. Uh, and then I'll be rewarded by my Allah as well if someone does this to me. And to be exiled from my land is a spiritual journey. It's a siyaha. It's just the next step of my, of, of my uh, connection with Allah. Um, so Ibn Qayyim continues, During his imprisonment, meaning the imprisonment of Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, in the fortress, he would say, uh, and actually this place where he was in prison, it's still, uh, the remnants of which, I, as far as I understand it, is there's still, you could still see them, it's in, it's in uh, Damascus. Um, he would say, I could not be more grateful for this blessing were, to ha- were, to, were I to have this entire fortress in gold. The place where he was imprisoned, he's so thankful for the blessing of being imprisoned. He said that I would not be able to thank them, even if they were to make uh, this entire fortress of gold. Or, I could never repay them for the good that has come to me in this prison. 
This is what he's stating while he's imprisoned. And so we learn a lot of things from this. One is that the habit of our ulama has always been to remain positive irrespective of circumstances. Right? No matter what. I mean, this is pretty... This is this is a pretty dire circumstance and yet look at the positivity he's demonstrating he's sharing with his students he's himself experiencing why because he for two reasons i mean there's many reasons but one is that he recognizes that everything comes from allah ta'ala anyway and so why not be grateful for whatever circumstance or situation allah ta'ala puts you in rather than complain about it and number two because it's a sunnah of the prophet sallallahu to remain positive to express positivity, to share positivity, and not always just talk about negativity and fear and consequences and you know and and unrest and unease. And I mean, this is not the this is not this is what we do today. This is all we talk about, right? This is not the habit of the Prophet It's to be positive, encouraging, and to look at whatever is positive in anything that you do or anything that you experience. And in fact, this is actually one of the treatments now accepted for for depression for people that suffer from depression and that can't get negative thoughts out of their mind, one of the treatments for it is to actually express your gratefulness for whatever it is you have in your life that's grateful, right? This is uh, one of the treatments. And uh, in fact, this is, there's a push to it. There's a lot now. It wasn't, this wasn't the case like 20 years ago, but now there's so many clinical studies that are ongoing that are studying the effect of gratefulness on the person's uh, sense of well-being. Meaning, if we take two groups of people and we have one group and every single day they have to remember or write down three things that they're grateful for and then we're going to take another group of people and, and have them just live a normal life and then see after three months or after six months what effect it has on their mood. This group tends to do better. And so there's a lot of studies trying to investigate this further and there's a big push toward this in mainstream, right, to what, it mean, what the effect of gratefulness is. Now, I mean, they're going to continue spending millions of dollars researching this, but we know from the uh, Quran that Allah Ta'ala says, In shakartum If you're grateful, you're going to get more. You're going to be increased. You're going to have a better life. You're going to get more of more happiness, more s- satisfaction, whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're looking for. You're grateful to Allah for something material, you'll get even more of that material. So uh, it's very interesting because um, this is now being looked at uh, even, even more than it was before. And you see this quality, you've always, we've always seen this quality in the Prophet Always seen this quality in the Prophet And we see this quality in, in our pious predecessors as well. Um, okay, so then, when he was in prostration, while he was imprisoned, he would say, uh, and this, uh, he said, Oh Allah, help me in my gratitude to you, remembrance of you, and most comely worship of you, inshallah. Right, this is from the this dua is from the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ told to a Sahabi, right? Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik. Right? Anyone know the name of the Sahabi? The Prophet ﷺ took the Sahabi and he said to him, Wallahi inni la uhibbuk. Verily, by Allah, I swear by Allah that I love you. It was Mu'adh bin Jabal radiallahu anhu. And he gave him something, he said, I, and he gave him this gift, you can say. And he said, make this statement. Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik. Oh Allah, grant me your remembrance. <clears throat> and so Ibn Taymiyyah used to make this dua. Oh Allah, grant me your remembrance. And this is a dua that you should recite immediately after every salah as well. And you hear this, right, um, from, from our teachers and our elders. Um, and look at the power of this dua. Oh Allah, um, grant me or help me or give me your remembrance. Which shows that um, 
the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala is given by Allah Ta'ala Himself. It's difficult, it, it, it cannot be without Allah Ta'ala's help. So you ask Allah Ta'ala, oh Allah, increase me in your remembrance if we desire to become true dhakirin of Allah. وَشُكْرِكَ uh, uh, Sorry, And increase me in, or grant me the ability to thank you properly. Even the ability to thank Allah, even the ability to express gratitude is a gift from Allah. It's not just an effect of our own effort or a result of our own effort actually given by Allah. And make me one of your, uh, and grant me excellent uh, worship of you as well. Um... So this was this was this is narrated in Abu Dawood. The Prophet said this to Muadh Verily, I love you, and he gave this to him Muadh bin Jabal as a gift, right? And um, uh, so, yeah, so we continue. Once he said to me, Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, said to Ibn al-Qayyim, sorry, Ibn Taymiyyah said to Ibn al-Qayyim, the real prisoner is someone whose heart is imprisoned from his Lord. The true captive is someone captured by their passions. Meaning, uh, if you, you know, kind of how the Prophet uses analogy, and we we went over the hadith earlier today. What's the true muhajid, right? A muhajid physically is someone that moves from one place to another place. But then the Prophet wants us to think even deeper than that, right? Don't just think at the don't just think surface level. Think about the depth. Uh, think think a little bit deeper. And so similarly, the scholars do the same, right? So a prisoner, yeah, physically someone who's imprisoned. But he says the real prisoner is someone whose heart is imprisoned from their Lord. The true captive is someone captured by their passions. You know, if you are, uh, if you are unable to accept that there is an Allah, that means there's this cage around your heart that's imprisoned and you can't remove it. That's true imprisonment. You could put a cage around your physical body, right, or put bars up in front of you. It's a little bit restrictive. But if someone, or if, if, if someone has or if you have placed around your heart a cage and your heart is imprisoned, that's true imprisonment. That's one that you can't escape from. You can't get out of it. You can't, if you tried, you couldn't get out of it, right? You could maneuver your way out of a, a jail cell, right? There, there's always, you know, you hear these stories of people getting through. But if your heart is imprisoned, unless Allah Ta'ala lifts that, that cage from your heart, you will not be able to remove it. So that's what true imprisonment is. And he says true imprisonment is the true captive of someone who's captured by their passions. Not being able to have self-discipline is a form of captivity, right? Not being able to control waking up in the morning, for instance. That's, that's captivity. You, to, for us to, you know, when the time for Fajr comes in and we are unable to get out of our bed to, do, to, to, to pray the Fajr prayer, we're, we're captive to ourselves. We've held our own selves captive. We are unable to break those chains of captivity. When we, for instance, want to uh, be consistent in our Quran, for instance, right, and we're unable to be consistent in our Quran, I mean, we're, we're or sorry, we're unable to, to have the energy or the desire to recite the Quran. We're captive to ourselves. We've held ourselves captive. We are unable to break those chains. And that's who a true captive is. <coughs> so then he continues. And Allah knows, Ibn Qayyim says this, I have never seen anyone who had a better life than this. I have never seen anyone who had a better life than this. Despite the difficulties and the discomforts and the... Um, and all that expunges comfort and luxury, 
nay, things completely opposite to them. Despite imprisonment, intimidation, and oppression, Ibn Taymiyyah had a purer life than anyone could. He was the most generous, the strongest of heart, and the most joyful of soul, with the radiance of bliss in his face. When we were seized with fear and our thoughts about Allah's decree turned negative and the earth grew narrow for us, we would go to him. No sooner did we look at him and hear his words than all of these feelings would leave us to be replaced by relief, strength, certainty, and tranquility. Um, the Sahaba, عنهم, when they felt uneasy or uncomfortable, worried, they would simply go and look at the face of the Prophet and they would receive uh, and comfort from all of these things. And it's because the Prophet was directly connected to the Divine. And we see this as well in the faces and in the hearts of our, uh, of our pious predecessors as well. They were so connected to Allah that when people come in the, their company, all of their worries go away. And, if, and this is still present today. And maybe you've experienced this yourself, but I mean, I certainly have. That, you know, all this, sometimes you have all this worry and all this concern and all this fear. And then you come into the company of your teacher, you come into the company of someone of righteousness or, or piety. And before you even open your mouth to express your worry, all of those things have already left your heart. Right? All of those things have already left your heart. It's such an ajeeb experience, but there's reality to this. Why is it? I mean, what was so special? It's because that person is connected to Allah. That person is excessive in the abundance of Allah. That person has learned how to express gratitude to Allah. Right? Ibn, Ibn Taymiyyah had reached that level or station with Allah. And so when his students would be worried or fearful or concerned, simply they would come in his company and that would be completely wiped away. They'd look at his face. His face was radiant and then that would be wiped away. So we see this today and this is something that we should... Uh, be mindful of that you know when we are when we ourselves experience this that we come in the company of righteous people and righteous gatherings and consistently do so it alleviates a lot of difficulty and a lot of worry from your heart it removes stress from your life it brings this peace and contentment that is difficult to attain any other way so this was present at that time and it's still present today. And uh, so this is why it's important. To, this, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about suhbah. I think he's going to come to that. But this is why it's important to, to seek the company of the righteous. Because it puts things into perspective for you. You don't even have to speak to them. You just have to sit in their company and you'll benefit. In fact, some of the mashayikh would say that if you can't benefit from my silence, then you won't be able to benefit from my speech. If you can't benefit from my silence then you won't be able to benefit from my speech. When we attend gatherings, right, whether it be in the masjid or at conferences, etc., we're waiting for the speaker to open their mouth, and then I want to hear what kinds of words they have to say and what, you know, what, um, what special things they can share right, verbally with me because we're caught in that world. We're caught in this world that only what I hear, uh, only, only, only words can effectuate change within my life, but that's not what really effectuates change. If we can't benefit from the silence and the piety and the company of that speaker, then we won't be able to benefit from their words either. Whatever benefit will be there will be transient, it will not be permanent. But on the other hand, if we can benefit from the silence of that person, then we'll benefit and that'll be a permanent benefit. 
Okay, so he continues. Um, so glory be to the one... Oh, so let me also... Um, okay, so this is also an important point, right? He mentioned earlier in here that I have never seen anyone who had a better life than his. Um, and we would come into his company and we would feel relief. Now, you have to recognize... You can you can feel the love that he had for his teacher in this relationship, right? You could you could sense it that he was just the world disappeared for him when he was in the company of his teacher. In fact, it literally did disappear because he had the option of being relieved, removed from from this imprisonment, right? But he chose to stay in prison in the company of his teacher. So, and what's interesting is if you really look at the differences between Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Al-Qayyim, there were a lot of differences in terms of their views on deen. Remember we mentioned it earlier, Ibn Taymiyyah was very strict and very firm and, and very strict to the point where a lot of ulama don't agree with a lot of his aqidah, etc. And, um, and Ibn Al-Qayyim, Ibn Al-Qayyim was very careful about how when he would you know, express his own thoughts in his writings, never to criticize his teacher. Even in this where you would never think that he had any differing view from his teacher, but he had a lot of differing views. In fact, all of this, this much of this text, which is based on, uh, w- which is about Allah Ta'ala's remembrance and about becoming closer to Allah, etc. Ibn Taymiyyah would not, I mean, this wasn't something that he would um, uh, reference, right, uh, necessarily. Uh, but you don't hear Ibn Al-Qayyim openly criticizing his teacher or criticizing his teacher. He was just... He was, in, he, was, he was in love with his teacher, and he had a very respectful way of dealing with it. Meaning, he didn't discredit what benefit he had gotten. Let's put it that way. He didn't discredit it. He recognized that so much benefit he had received from his teacher, even if later on he decided to defer, disagree on certain matters, he, never, he did not negate what benefit he did receive. And that's a very important principle, right? We tend to take benefit from people, and uh, if, some, if, if our teachers or if our ulama, if somebody says one thing that we disagree with, or let's say a speaker comes into your community and they say 99 things that you agree with and one thing that you disagree with, you're stuck on that one disagreement. And you will harass, the entire community will harass them afterward and say, why did you say that? Can you believe, you know, can you believe what that person just said? And it becomes the talk of the town and everyone, you know, is in an uproar. And you negate, you know, the 99 good things that were said or the years of service that that person put into the community. This isn't the habit of our of our pious predecessors. They accept what was good, and unless something was purely haram that they needed to speak out against, they respected that this was that person's opinion. And if, in, in particular, if it was their teacher, they did they didn't speak out against it. So, focus focusing on the positive again. Okay, he continues. Uh, a pious on. Um, okay, so he t- he said that all of these. Okay, so no sooner did we look at him and hear his words than all of these feelings would leave us to be replaced by relief, strength, certainty, and tranquility. So glory be to the one who lets his servants witness his heaven well before they meet him. Right, Jannah is on the, is can be in this world if if a person follows all of those things that we mentioned. Uh, so he's saying, subhanAllah, glory be to that person who gives you the opportunity to taste Jannah in this world. Uh, who opens its doors to them in this world of deeds and who gives them something of its refreshment, its breeze and its perfume. Jannah is a place without suffering, right? If you were to define Jannah, it's a place without suffering. And this is a place of extreme suffering. 
But the people who believe in Allah and the people who tie themselves to Allah, they connect with Allah in their abundant or in their dhikr of Allah Ta'ala, they begin to taste some of the fragrances of Jannah even in this world. The sweetness, it's breeze, it's refreshment. You taste it in this world. The expansiveness of your chest. The, the, this is experienced in this world. Um, okay, so then he says, a, a pious person once said, if kings and... The, okay, let's... Um, we only have uh, 10 minutes for this session, so let me... Okay, a pious person once said, how pitiful, how pitiful the worldly people. They leave this life without ever having tasted the sweetest thing in it. Worldly people meaning people of the dunya, people of the dunya, people whose hearts are attached to dunya. How pitiful the worldly people. They leave this life without having ever tasted the sweetest thing in it. When asked what that was, he replied, the love of Allah, the knowledge of Allah, and the remembrance of Allah, or worse to that effect. Meaning how pitiful, you can live in this world and never experience some of those the fruits of Jannah, which are the love of Allah. How could you go through this world and not know what it feels like to, to, to be in love with Allah? Or not, under, not know that there is an Allah? That's imprisonment, that's captivity, to not know that there is an Allah. And to not be able to remember Allah. What kind of life is that? And then he references uh, uh, that... This statement is possibly referring to Abdullah ibn Mubarak, radiallahu uh, anhu, who said, Worldly people leave the world before having feasted on the sweetest thing in it. They asked him, What was it? You know, what is the sweetest thing in it that worldly people have not been able to feast on? So he, he said, The knowledge of Almighty Allah. There's nothing sweeter, there's nothing more to feast on in this world than the knowledge that there is an Allah. And if you can't feast on this, then you haven't had a feast in this world. If you haven't been able to taste this, you haven't tasted anything in this world. You've missed out completely. Okay, he continues. And I'm just going to read now because the rest, this, uh, this next section, is uh, there's a lot of uh, wisdom in it. But I'm just going to read it. it and, and inshallah, it'll all sink in and then we'll conclude. Um... Uh, uh, I'm going to try to just read it, but I get sidetracked very easily. <laughs> another said, another pious person said, there are times when the heart dances in joy. And another person said, there are times when I say, if the people of heaven, if the people of Jannah have anything like this, how truly sweet their lives. If the people of Jannah have anything like this, meaning there are people in this world who are so connected to Allah, they're so sad, and as a result, they're so satisfied with this world, the experience of this world. They're so content with it. They're so grateful toward everything in it, and they have no complaints whatsoever. Their, their statement is what? There are times when I say, if the people of Jannah have anything like this, how truly sweet their lives must be. If this is, what it must, is this what it feels like to be in Jannah? You know, sometimes toward this experience you have, for instance, when there's only a couple of times where you'll have, I, th- I think a common person can have this experience. One is if you spend, for instance, Eritikaf, right? And initially it's tough, it's tough, the full Eritikaf, not two, three day, you know, pseudo Eritikaf like we're trying to do here, but a full 10 days where you spend time in Allah Ta'ala's home, then you're fasting and you're praying, and initially it's very difficult. But then toward the end, the last one or two days, you're like, oh my God, I'm so happy. Do- Does this have to end? Like, does this really have to end? And then the thought goes into mind, okay, 
maybe this is what Jannah feels like. You know, where you're just happy and you're comfortable and you're content and you're interacting with Allah. I mean, there's no, there's no, the best part of Jannah is what? Like, what's the happiest experience that the believers will experience in Jannah? What is it? Seeing, Seeing Allah. Right? I mean, if ever, there's nothing greater, even in Jannah, where there's no suffering and you can have whatever you want, the best experience you will have in Jannah, and this is in Hadith, is that experience of being able to see and interact with Allah. So, the i'tikaf is that one time where you kind of feel most connected with Allah toward the end of it, not at the beginning, toward the end. And you're thinking, oh man, does this have to end? I finally feel like I can converse with and communicate with my Lord. And then, some people in their mind, they think, this must be what Jannah feels like. And the other time or place where you may feel this is when you go to the Haram. When you go to Makkah Mukarramah, for instance. And you um, experience that satisfaction, that first glance at the Kaaba, for instance, or the experience of Tawaf, or just being in that sacred space. It's so comforting. It's so relaxing. You, the world completely disappears when you're there. Then it's at that time where you where the question comes to where that question comes to mind. Wow, this must be this must be what Jannah is like, right? You know what's I mean? You're not like when you're there, you're traveling, etc. You don't you're not in the comforts of your own home. You're not in the comforts of your own you know Mercedes Benz. You're not in the comforts of all of these things. Why is it that you feel as content as you do? Same thing with Artikaf. You're 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 imprisoned. You're locking yourself into a masjid. You're sitting on the ground for you know eighteen hours a day. You're not. It's not. Com- you're fasting all day. You're not comfortable. You're not seeing the people that you love, your family members, etc. Why is it that you experience this, this, uh, this sensation toward the end of it? Because you connected with Allah. You're being. A- you're not seeing Allah, but it's the closest you're going to get in this world to seeing Allah. And similarly, you're not in your own personal comfort when you're at the Haramain. And you're not vacationing in, you know, some luxurious resort, right? Where you have spa access and you have massages and jet skiing and all that. But yet you feel the happiest when you're there and you're thinking there's no better place than this place. Why is it? And then it's because you're, you're able to, your glimpse, you're having a glimpse of what it must be like to look at Allah. You ha- this is a taste of what you'll experience in Jannah. And, and Jannah is a place of no suffering. So similarly... This place can be a place of limited suffering as well. So uh, to love Allah, to know Him, we're continuing, to love Allah, to know Him intimately, to remember Him constantly, to find peace and rest in Him, to make Allah alone the ultimate object of love, fear, hope, and trust, to base one's act on His control and of His servant's cares, aspirations, and will, such is this world's heaven." Such is this world's Jannah. And such is a blessing with which no other blessing can compare. It is by this that the hearts of those who love Allah are gladdened, and the people of piety find life. As their hearts are gladdened by Allah, so others are gladdened by them. For whoever finds his source of gladness in Allah gladdens all hearts. Whoever does not finds nothing in this world but restlessness. Look, the effect of a person having Allah Ta'ala's love in their heart is that not only are they content and satisfied and happy and gladdened, but they're able to share that with other people as well. Right? Ibn al-Qayyim comes in the company of his teacher and he feels the effect. We come in the company of our teachers and we receive this as well. They are people who are connected with Allah and have made Allah Ta'ala the ultimate object of love, fear, hope, and trust. 
they, this world is a heaven for them. You come and interact with them and your world becomes a heaven as well. Right? So if you, and this is, um, this is just a principle that if you fill your heart with Allah's love, your heart begins to permeate that love toward other people as well. A, a, a type of nur, a type of light emanates from your heart and it, and it uh, is spread and it's shared with the people around you. Right? So if a person truly wants to benefit other people, if a person truly wants to bring and benefit other people, bring benefit to other people, dini benefit in particular, but in general, you just want to be this source of benefit for anyone around you that you interact with, right? People at work, people at home, people at school, people in the community. Well, the way by which you can really benefit them is by fixing your own, the state of your own heart and filling your own heart with Allah's love. And then you don't have to say anything to them. You don't have to open your mouth. They come in your company and they feel this as well. They just want to be around you because they feel something special about you. Your life is a Jannah and then you'll be able to share that with others as well. Okay. Um, so for, for whoever finds his source of gladness in Allah gladdens all hearts. Whoever does not finds nothing in this world but restlessness. Anyone with life in his or her heart will confirm this. If your heart is alive, you can, you can swear by this. If, the, if your heart is dead, it's dead. You don't know. You're missing out. But if your heart is alive, you'll confirm this. But someone whose heart is dead will only estrange you from Allah. Meaning someone else that you're interacting with whose heart is dead. That person will estrange you from Allah. And so seek, so Ibn Qayyim is saying, and so seek intimacy with Allah without that person when you can. For his mere presence will estrange you. Meaning the company of people who are heedless of Allah and who, uh, whose hearts are dead and who could care less about Allah. Meaning bad company in general. They will take you away from Allah. He's saying his mere presence will estrange you. right? Not his habits, or not his sayings, not what he does. Or what, just simply spending time in that person's company will take you away from Allah. So you get to think about this. I mean, are there people in my life who are, are, are in general, you know, on, uh, not on the straight path, right? They've deviated from the straight path. They're engaged in all of these other activities that have nothing to do with Allah. And in fact, they, they are transgressions against Allah. They're open sins against Allah. Now, okay, I can choose to spend time in that person's company or I can choose to stay away from them. Even if I don't engage in activities with them, that person will take me away from Allah. You have to move away from that. If you are tested by him, show him only your outer aspect, but leave him behind in your heart. Meaning don't let that, if, if that person is challenging you, right, and they're encouraging you or bringing you toward their own life, you know, let's say you have to spend time with them, then don't let your heart, uh, don't bring that person into your heart. Just show them your outward state. Depart from him with your soul and do not let him distract you from the one who is most important to you. Allah Ta'ala is the most important to us. You have to make a sacrifice for the sake of Allah. Know that the greatest of all losses is the involvement with someone who weakens your relationship and standing with Allah, cutting you off from Allah, wasting your time, dispersing your heart, weakening your resolve and dividing your aspirations. Therefore, if you are tested by this kind of situation and it is inevitable that you will be, meaning don't think that you can... Uh, escape this. Everyone will have to interact with, will come across this, this challenge. 
Then bear up for the sake of Allah and acknowledge Him as much as you are able to. Draw nearer to Allah by whatever of it pleases to Him, whatever of it pleases Him. Make your association with worldly people, people a profit, not a loss. Be like the man traveling along whom another invites to stop. Seek to take that person along with you. Right? This journey of becoming closer to Allah, it's not, it, 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 there is a degree of, there's a personal journey to it as well. But you don't just hoard this and keep this to yourself. Once your eyes are opened up to the importance of this, and once you recognize the value of this, and once you recognize the benefits of this, and your life begins to open up and you get that expansiveness and satisfaction, don't just keep this to yourself. Bring other people along the journey. Share it with other people. Take someone else and say, listen, come with me. You're coming with me. Right? Rather than chasing after people that have no interest in this and want to go in a different direction and having them pull you, you pull them along and you encourage them. It isn't that you just keep this to yourself, right? And this is, I mean, this is, uh, uh, this is, this is why the mashayikh, when they, uh, or when the ulama, when they have students, their expectation is a student isn't just going to take that benefit from them and then just disappear and keep it to themselves or keep it to their immediate family. Their expectation is they're now going to take this benefit and they're going to share it with the rest of the world. They're going to share it with the people around them. This is our responsibility as well. You don't just keep this to yourself. If you've experienced it, if you've tasted it, bring that person, bring someone else along with you. When he comes along, lead him, but be not led by him. Right? Don't, you know, sometimes we're overly humble and we'll say that, oh, who am I? I'm a nothing. I can't help anybody. I'm just this weak, you know, feeble, useless, pathetic, you know, I'm just going to sit in the company of people of piety. I'm just going to take what I can and I'm just going to, uh, uh, and that's it. I'm just going to keep it to myself. Who, who am I? Who, who am I to help anyone? This is this the, comes into our mind, but he's saying like, don't be that person who's just a pushover and you know always giving in to what everybody else says, right? Oh, come, let's do, let's try this new thing out. Right, okay, I'll, let's just do. I'll do it one time. No, be that. Be a leader. Be a leader who calls to Allah. Be a leader who invites to Allah. Be a leader who guides people to Allah. Everyone has that ability. Everybody has that power. No matter the, the mere fact that you're sitting here today and you're listening to this, or you're here today and you're you know reflecting upon this, you now all have enough qualification to bring other people along this path as well. That's it. There's no you don't need some formal ijazah or certificate to tell people about how important it is to connect with Allah. You don't need some formal you know, a certificate, or you don't need some formal diploma or some formal ceremony that tells you that, oh, now you can help people along the journey to Allah. You have it. All of you already have it. When he comes along, lead him, but be not led by him. Meaning, uh, yeah, you yourself become that guiding light. You become that source of light. And if he refuses, and you have no hope that he will journey then at least do not let him detain you. You know, sometimes this happens. You, you're somebody that you really want to work on, right? You want to bring them closer to Allah, and you try for a little bit, and, you know, they push away. You try a little bit, they push away. You try a little bit, you push away. Um, move away at that point. And not because you're giving up on them. It's because you risk yourself falling to, falling to their habits as well. That's, that's the risk. Now, of, that doesn't mean that you turn away your hope on them, but maybe it means that someone else needs to approach them, or someone, um, someone different, or a different perspective, or a different angle, or someone with maybe stronger iman can then approach them. You just don't want to take yourself down with them as well. 
And I say this because I've seen this with my own eyes countless times where people attach themselves to Allah. They begin on the path of suluk. They try to become closer to Allah. And then they have these group of friends that they also want to bring along. And they work on them, work on them, and they're not listening. And they're not budging. And they keep working. And eventually, they spend so much time in this effort that they get sucked in back into that group and those activities and those habits and they're lost, never to be seen again. So we have to be careful of this and mindful of this. So it says, and if he refuses, and you have no hope that he will journey, meaning in your own mind, this it's not working, then at least don't let him detain you. Ras, rather, hasten on, pay him no heed. Okay, move on with your own life. Just focus now that, okay, this person not listening, I need to continue. I'm not going to suffer because of this. You know, and uh, this is interesting because I think we had, someone else mentioned something similar to this. Right? I was saying, oh, you know, we're, we're missing so-and-so brothers that were here last time. They're not here this time. And the person's response was, Honestly, I just needed to get myself here. And that was, such a, that was very powerful. It's like, yeah, because, okay, you try and people aren't listening, fine. But I'm not going to lose out because of other people. This is my, I'm going to stand before Allah on the Day of Judgment. I need to make sure that I'm not missing out on special gatherings like these. Um, rather, hasten on, pay him no heed. Uh, do not even turn in his or her direction, for he is a highway robber regardless. That person's out to get you. And... Uh, if it's not that person consciously doing so, it's the shaitan that's driving that person that's trying to get you. Protect your heart and be careful of how you spend your day and night. Um, and then there's a couple of other sentences he mentions that Ibn al-Qayyim, that, that uh, the translators say that we're lost in translation, so we won't cover that. So we'll stop here, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, allow us to taste the fruits of this world from, the, from, from, from experiencing, from, from the remembrance of him. May Allah ta'ala uh, give us many experiences in this world that are, that are like the sweetness and the fragrances and the breezes of Jannah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, uh, grant us all the tawfiq to be uh, guiding lights that guide other people toward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, wa